0: Oh, Father, how we love that theme of grace and how it proves to us your great love and kindness, that undeserved favor by which you put your Son in our place to clean up our mess. Father, thank you for your love and your faithfulness for another week. Thank you for the strengthening factor that it always is for us to gather together. And thank you now, Lord, as we open our Bibles for your Holy Spirit, who will teach us and guide us in all truth. We commit ourselves now, Lord, to the study of your Word, and then to following through and to walking in obedience to that Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, wouldn't it be something if in God's Word we had some kind of a transforming mark that was to be made when we enter into faith with Jesus Christ. Now think about it. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That if you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you would maybe go paint your house purple and put white polka dots all over it so that everyone in the neighborhood knows there's a follower of Jesus, right? Maybe one of those big, a big flag or something like we used to put on our bicycles back in the 70s with the... The pole and the flag. I'm a Jesus follower. I have this mark. It's really not that way. Here comes a stink bug, Dave. Um, It's really not that way, though, is it? Isn't it interesting that when we turn in our Bibles, we find out that when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are to be transformed. In fact, spiritually, we are transformed. The old is gone, the new has come. The Apostle Paul said, we're to be renewed in our mind. Our manner of life is to be changed. We're to put away old things. But God doesn't ask us in the church today to take some kind of a mark. I mean, I think of uh, some of the Old Testament illustrations of taking a mark. Uh, do you remember where, um, in, I believe it's in the book of Exodus, where the bondservant could come to his master... A servant who, after seven years of serving, would be freed, and then he said, You know what? I love my master. I want to stay and serve my master. And he would go up to the doorpost of his master's house. The master would take an awl and pierce his ear and mark or notch his ear so that he was marked as one belonging to that servant. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? There are some other Old Testament markings, aren't there? When God was dealing specifically with His people in certain ways, He said, don't cut the hair on the sides of your head. And and even today, in some Orthodox Jewish communities, you'll see the men who have the long curl coming down the sides of their hair. There are faith communities not far from here, Southern PA, a number of groups of people that mark themselves by specific external markings, don't they? Do you know, in the New Testament, we're not called to do that. It's just expected that when Christ takes over my life, there's going to be something different about me. I don't have to paint my house. I don't have to wear my hair a certain way. Just everything about me is now different. I was thinking about that that passage in Acts chapter 4 when Peter was preaching and and, uh, they came to... the. Pharisees and the leaders of the community came to shut it down, and Peter and John were there, and they knew who they were, and they knew that they were just ordinary guys, just regular old fellows. But it says that they were astonished because they could tell what? Remember what it says? That they had been with Jesus. There is something about the transformative power of Christ that changes us so that We who are under grace don't need to take an external marking. It's just supposed to show. Jesus Himself said what? And they'll know that you are Christians by your love. There is to be something about the way believers love one another that when the watching world observes, they're to say, I don't get those people. I just know there's something really different about them. It's not because we have purple hair. It's not because we stick something in our nose or whatever. It's because... What happened on the inside transforms the outside. You might reach down on a chair nearby and pick up notes. I'm using notes today for a couple reasons, largely because I need to be held accountable for the time that I have. And if you see my outline, you know where I am and I can't just bird dog and get too far astray. But I do want to cover all of Genesis chapter 17 this morning in our Genesis series I was thinking how along this line of the marking of God or taking the mark of God, that in the New Testament, the language even changes there. He says in uh, 1 Peter and in Philippians, he talks about us being aliens and strangers in this world. It's supposed to show, isn't it? We're now a royal priesthood, he says, a holy nation, called out ones. But it never says... You know, take this mark. It's interesting. In Genesis chapter 17, we returned there from last week. If you were here, you know that we didn't finish our message. And in Genesis chapter 17, the balance of the material is about the mark of God that God is commanding Abram, now changing his name to Abraham, that Abram is to take a mark. That is to mark him as... God's man I want to reread all of Genesis chapter 17 and take the few minutes that it takes so that we're all together and caught up, and then we'll review briefly. That's another reason I wanted to use the notes was just because I only got about a third of a way through the message last week, and I want to very quickly catch up to speed where we are and finish out the messages, and I trust help you in your understanding of what I would consider to be a most unusual passage of Scripture. I even don't want to say it inappropriately about God's Word, but it is just an odd passage of Scripture, in a way, when you stop and think about it. Well, let's try to figure out what God is talking about here, and what He's doing in Abram's life, and how He's at work as He uh, makes this covenant, and actually, you know, if you've been with us in our Genesis series, that He's been... um, emphasizing this covenant that he's going to bring out of Abram a people and a place, a property and a place, a people and a place, and he's adding to this covenant, layer upon layer, in a sense, more detail. The most detail is given here in chapter 17. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. I'm reading out of the New International Version, and listen as I read. Genesis chapter 17 in its entirety today. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. And then then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. And this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. And he laughed and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And then God said, Yes, But your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you, and I will surely bless him, and I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac." Whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. And on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household, or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them, as God told him. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. And Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. What an interesting passage of Scripture. And for us to be able to kind of get a handle on our understanding of it, I've kind of come at it from three different angles. The first thing, if you were here last week, you know we talked about was the name of God. And the second thing we looked at was breaking down some of the dynamics of the man of God as he uses someone, the qualities in the man of God. And then finally, the balance of the passage the main point of the passage has to do with this interesting, even strange mark of God. Let's just review quickly what we talked about. Remember, there's 13 years between chapter 16 and chapter 17. And Abram, no doubt, has been struggling for these 13 years. And so it's important for us not to quickly pass over the introduction that God gives himself to Abram as he comes and speaks to him. After 13 years of evident silence and Abram wondering what in the world God is going to do, God comes to him and the first thing he does is introduce himself, as you remember, Almighty God, El Shaddai. The Almighty God. The the powerful one, the God who sustains and nurtures and and builds and is strong, even the the combination of a mountain and a woman's breast, the combination of the word usage there we talked about last week. No doubt Abram has to be wondering, God, what are you doing in my life? God, what's with the delay? You promised me. You made a unilateral covenant with me two chapters ago. Thirteen years has gone by. Abram, in the power of his own flesh and in the logic of his own humanity, has taken a young wife. He's had a son, this boy Ishmael. He looks at Ishmael playing across the yard, and he says, the boy is thirteen, he's almost a man. And soon, soon he'll be a man. He'll be old enough to take a wife one of these days. Maybe through him is the promise going to be fulfilled of a great nation. And so God comes to him and immediately just reminds him, look, Abram, no need to go to plan B. No need to worry about altering the plan. No need to be in a panic. No shortcuts in the flesh. All right? No need for you to be doubting around your fire at night, wondering whether I'm still involved in your life. I am El Shaddai. I said it. And I can do it, and I'm not a bit worried about your 99-year-old body or your 90-year-old wife. Boy, what an encouraging word, isn't it? As God comes to us and as He promises and He makes promises in His Word for us to remember that He's El Shaddai. You have something impossible going on in your world? It's not impossible for El Shaddai, you see. And so we can't pass that over. And that's point number one. The name of God is important here because God is going to do something that only He can do. And so He reminds Abram, I am El Shaddai. Secondly, and this is where we were when we left off, two points into the man of God. And when we look at this passage, I thought it was quite evident in the passage that there were some dynamics, there were some characteristics or qualities that were evidenced in Abram's life and even in God's uh, instruction to him, that God is going to do a work now in Abram's life. Abram, get ready to go here. Abram, I'm changing your name to Abraham. That means the father of a million people, the father of many nations. Yeah, right, God, I have one son, and the son you've promised to build all the kingdom and kings and nations through hasn't even been born yet. And you've changed my name to Abraham. It's almost funny. Is that Abram? Abraham now? Here's some qualities. Here's some characteristics that I want to see evidence, and that we can learn by looking at Abram. The first thing we saw was that when God said, I am God Almighty, now walk before me and be blameless. You remember a couple of chapters ago when God made the unilateral covenant. Remember the odd passage where, where um, Abram had to cut apart the animals and set the parts apart from each other? And, he, and then... God put Abram into a deep sleep and God walked between the the cut animals. It was a unilateral covenant. I will keep this covenant or may God do to me what I've done to these animals kind of thing. But now, as God continues to repeat the promise to Abram that through you, I am going to build a nation. I'm going to build a great people. Kings will come from you. One of the most famous was King David, right? The most famous was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Ultimately, but through you, I'm going to build a nation. I'm going to build kings. I'm going to build a people. I'm going to give you a land. But now, though it's a unilateral covenant, God is putting some things on Abram. And he says, I want you to do this. First thing he says to him is, I want you to be blameless. The word is purity for us, right? The idea is that God does not use dirty vessels. What did Paul tell Timothy? There's all kinds of dishes and bowls in a house, right? But God uses vessels that are unto honor, sanctified and fit for the Master's use. You wash the dishes before you eat supper, don't you? You try not to eat off a dirty plate, drink out of a dirty glass. And so it is with God's servants. He uses clean vessels. Purity of life matters. Abram, I want you to walk before me now and I want you to be blameless. Pay attention to how you're living. Secondly, I want you to see the appropriate response that Abram took. And this is where we ended last time, just with this one. Abram fell face down. in the second dynamic or, or the essential quality or prerequisite to be used of God, some of us wonder, why is God not using me? Well, number one, purity of life matters. Number two is the word humility. As, God encounter, as Abram encounters God, El Shaddai, he falls on his face in humility. Thirdly now, as we get into the message and move ahead and see what God has for us today, this is kind of an interesting thing, but I noticed in verse 17, if you'll notice there, that Abram evidently a second time falls face down again before God. And this is when God has said to him, Abram, it's going to happen through your body and it's going to happen through Sarah's body. You are going to have a son. And Abram, it says, verse 17, fell face down and he laughed and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? I don't know exactly what's going on in the mind of Abram right here, but I wrote down the word faith there for point number three. I believe what we see in this passage is Abram... Absorbing and taking in and believing that God is going to do what he says. We know already, and Paul, arguing in Romans chapter 4, has already said that it was before, it was before Abram was circumcised that his faith was counted as righteousness for him. So Abram has already believed, and we've seen that in the previous passage, passages, that he believed God. That is, that through him there would be an offspring and a people and a land. So what is this with Abram falling down on his face, laughing out loud? It's especially puzzling when you think about the fact that nowhere in this passage does God scold Abraham for laughing. You know what's coming next week in chapter 18. There's going to be three messengers that are going to come to Abraham's tent. And God is once again going to emphasize, it is through Sarah, your wife, that you are going to have a baby. And Sarah's over in her tent, listening through the tent wall, and what does she do? She laughs out loud. What does God do? God scolds her for it. God condemns her for it. God, there's no word here that Abraham was scolded or that it was a negative kind of laugh. And I found that the commentators were a little bit conflicted as to exactly what was going on in Abraham's mind here. But using Scripture to bring light upon Scripture, which is our best commentary, isn't it? In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul clearly says that Abraham believed and never wavered in his faith. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 says the same thing. The greatest example of faith held up for us in our New Testament is Abraham. And so here's what I take happening here is that Abraham is realizing the reality of the promise is about to launch and he's just, it's so emotional. He didn't know whether to yell, jump around, but he starts to laugh, kind of, I guess, giggle, but he's on his face. And I think he's acknowledging the reality that God is indeed going to do this through him and it is nothing more than on his face, in faith, believing that God is going to do what he's going to do. It's interesting, isn't it? And he says, he goes on to say, Lord, how is this going to be? It's a little bit like Mary when the angel came to Mary and said, out of you will be born a baby. You a virgin. And remember what her response was. How can it be? How can it be? It wasn't that I don't believe it's going to happen. She fully believed it was going to happen in faith. Believing it was going to happen, she wondered at the process and I suspect that's something of what's going on in Abram's mind here when he said, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will a son be born? Will a child be born to Sarah at age 90? How's that going to happen? And God says, I'm El Shaddai. It's going to happen the same way it happens to everybody. It just these things happen. And I'm God and I can take your old body and I can make it work. And Abram believed, Abraham believed it would happen. Now, I think the next phrase there where it says, and Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. What is that statement? Was that a lack of faith? Was that a lack of vision for Isaac who was promised? I take that to be a statement of Abraham's genuine, authentic love for his son Ishmael. He's kind of wondering, what's going to happen to Ishmael? Why can't you do a great work in Ishmael's life? You know, we know, we know from the evidence of the passages that Abraham's household has been in turmoil for 13 years. Ever since he took Hagar to be his wife, it has driven Sarai crazy. And you know he's been out, Abraham has had to inspect the pastures and the fields and the animals more now than he ever had for the last 13 years to get out of the house. It just has not been good. And we know coming soon in the passage, about a year from now, when the baby is born, I don't mean a year from now in our message series, I mean a year from now where we are in the passage. It could be a year from now in our series. Probably not. That Sarah is finally going to say, I've had it, get that boy, get that wild donkey of a boy and get him out of here. And Abraham's seen it. He's tried to raise this wild donkey. Remember, God said he's a wild donkey of a man. No doubt he was a rascallion of a boy, but Abraham loved that boy. Probably took his pocket knife and cut Abram's tent ropes and all kinds of things, fussing around. Isaac. I mean Ishmael, Ishmael, you know, always after him. God, why don't you do a work in Ishmael's life? And God so God promises to raise up a nation through him. Notice that through Ishmael, though, those who bless him will not be blessed. There is not a blessing through Ishmael. The blessing only comes through Isaac. And so I see in this an act of faith as he falls down, believing and laughing out loud in utter in a human, the, as his brain is stretched beyond human comprehension, and his spiritual faith has to kick in. God, you're really going to do this thing. Purity, humility, faith. And then I think verse 23 is noteworthy, is our fourth characteristic or quality of the man of God in Abram, as we see modeled here. On that very day... Verse 23: Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. You should underline those four words probably in your Bible. As God told him. This is an obedient man, isn't it? And and you know what? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes here for a minute. This is pretty crazy. And he's got lots of servants. He's got lots of farmhands and helpers and staff. And he's got a 13-year-old son. And now Abraham says, um, Okay, guys, line up right here. And he reaches in his pocket. He pulls out his knife. And he says, okay, here we go. I'm not working for that guy. That's the day I quit. I mean, this. Think about it. Think about it. But Abraham was committed to obedience. Like my boss has lost his ever-loving mind. He wants to take his jackknife and get me. You're crazy. And he lines them up and he circumcises them and he circumcises himself at age 99. We don't know the exact details. That's probably a good thing. But that leads us, doesn't it, to this really uh, seemingly strange passage. And what is it that God is doing and why is it, of all things, why wouldn't God say, put a stud in your nose? Why wouldn't God say, whack off one of your ears? Why would He say, take the male foreskin and cut it off? The word literally means a cutting round. That makes sense? And He specifically says in verses 11 through 12 that every male was to have this foreskin cut away, and he reinforces it with the strongest of language. Look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You think God doesn't mean business? He absolutely means business. So what is this all about? What is this all about? This is exactly what you wanted. To come to church, be encouraged and strengthened with a message on circumcision. Well, I'll tell you something. It is significant. It's in the Bible. It's in Genesis. We're preaching through Genesis. Here we go. I would like to suggest that there's five reasons why God did this mark on His people as a reminder of this covenant promise. First of all, I want you to see that this circumcision was, and I would say still is, for Jewish people, a mark of identity for them. It is a mark of identity. You know what? I have skipped over the, the other marks of covenants. But you know these well. Let's back up just a second under the mark of God. We know that God often used some kind of a symbol to remind us of His promise. The Noahic covenant that He would no longer flood the earth was what? The rainbow, right? The rainbow. You can look up the verses on your own later. In the Mosaic covenant, and God's promise in separating out Moses and working through the uh, giving the law to Moses, one of the things what did he do? He took one day of the week, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath became the indicator of that covenant promise, and so God used the Sabbath day as a marker. When we go to our New Testament, and we're reminded of this often regularly when we take communion here, what did Jesus do as a reminder of the New Testament, the New Covenant? Testament means covenant. Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, held up the bread and He holds up the cup and He said, This is the New Covenant that is now in my body. This is my body broken for you. This cup, this is my blood shed for you. Do this often in remembrance of me. What is it? It is a reminder of the new covenant and praise God for the new covenant. And so when we get to the Abrahamic covenant, of all things, he says, circle cut the foreskin off of every male. Isn't that interesting? Why? What good is it? What about the girls? And how does this work? We can see a rainbow in the sky. We can see that God's people of old, in their neighborhoods, everybody on the Sabbath day was washing their chariot and mowing their lawn, and then they came to God's man. No, no, we don't work on the Sabbath. Something wrong with those people. Yeah, they're followers of God. They're different. They stand out. They don't have to paint their house purple and put polka dots on it. If you just watch how they live, they are really different. But what about this circumcision? you supposed to, hmm, I wonder about that guy. How do you know? What good did it do? Listen, it was not a public thing. This was a personal mark. Okay? Think about it. It does make sense in that every man, multiple times a day, would be reminded something different about my body. Oh yeah, I'm a covenant child. We'll talk more about why God positioned it in this part of the body because you could say, well, if he whacked his ear off, every time he looked in the mirror, he would be reminded of it. Or every time he went to scratch his ear or whatever. You know? Oh, my ear's gone. Oh yeah, I'm a God's child. Now this was a very personal thing and every man saw himself multiple times a day as he relieved himself. He would know and be reminded throughout the day. Secondly... Every Jewish bride, when she took a husband, would know on the night of her wedding, I have a covenant man. I have a marked man. I am with a man of God's, under God's promise. He has the physical mark to remind him of something. But listen, there's more to it than this because it's more than just an ethnic marking, an identity. It's sort of ethnic. The Jewish Jews practice it. Other people did practice it. Even in the area later on, it's later in the historical timeline in our Bibles, the Israelites despised others who did not practice this. It was more than just a hygienic thing. Turns out that this is a good surgery to have, that you're better off if you've had it than not, hygienically speaking. Do you remember what David said? Man, I love that guy, 15, 16-year-old kid, bag of bread and cheese over his shoulder, commanded by his father to go up and visit visit his brothers on the battlefield, and for some 40 days or something, the Israelite army lines up, ho, 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 goes out there chanting, marching. The Philistine army lines up, Goliath steps forth, and all the Israelites run, high hightail it like a bunch of cowards. And David shows up, what's going on here? And remember David's response? You have to love it. He's like, why would a 15-year-old boy think like this? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine. You think you would just say, who is this Philistine? Who is this giant? No. Who is this unmarked, uncircumcised? It was common knowledge. The Philistines didn't do this. There were other nations. My understanding is that some Arab groups even do it as a rite of passage. Generally, they do theirs at age 13, not on day 8 of a baby's life. It's an ethnic marking. It's a mark of identity. Secondly, as we move along, I want you to recognize from this passage, too, that it is a mark of humility. It is a mark of humility. And I think this is largely why God located this mark on the male body where He did. In fact, and this is Van Marceau surmising, I do not read this in any commentaries, but I wonder, I didn't even read anybody speculating about it, I suspect and wonder that if Abram had not sinned, in his lack of faith with Hagar, that the mark of this covenant would not be where it is located. But at the origin of the procreative organ is where God marked him to remind him that you cannot do things your way, you have to do things my way. And when you do things your way, it messes everything up. And now every Israelite male, in all humility, by the very mark on his body, acknowledges that this was something, This I am, a, I am an Israelite man. I am a child of promise or one who has committed to that and taken the mark of circumcision. I am one of God's people here. I am one of the, the chosen, in essence, Not by, and a part of this nation, not by anything that man did. Abram couldn't make it happen on his own, but God did it. God did it. Thirdly, it's a mark of loyalty, I think. It's a mark of loyalty, and I go back to verse 14 for this. Notice what he says here. Any uncircumcised male, and I've already emphasized this verse, who has not been circumcised in the flesh, he'll be cut off from his people. If you're not, in essence, going to take our number, then get out from among us. You don't belong here if you don't take this mark. And it is a mark of loyalty and it is hugely serious. It is taken very seriously by Jewish families that they would mark their sons in this manner. History has proven that under certain oppressive regimes during times of of persecution for Jewish families, that one of the ways the Gentile and pagan kings would oppress the Jewish families was would outlaw circumcision. And that the Jewish families would rather suffer the death penalty than not follow through with circumcision based upon verse 14, Genesis 17. They do not want to be cut off from God. You know, I think there's a picture here too of exclusivity under number three, this idea of loyalty. But listen, verse 14 reminds us of another principle in the New Testament, doesn't it? That people don't like. But with this circumcision and with this command that if you don't do this, you'll be cut off. You'll be, in essence, circumcised from the people. It's God's way or the highway. There was no other way but God's way. There's no waffling on this. And I find that to be the the rub for so many people with Christianity and with fundamental Christians and conservative evangelicals. I mean, I think of Tim Tebow playing for Florida, getting all kinds of heat for his testimony in Christ, one of the best college football players there is right now. Sports Illustrated, it was interesting, the month after the article where Tim Tebow shared his testimony of faith in Christ in a Sports Illustrated interview just a couple months ago, the next issue that came the next week was unbelievable. The letters that people wrote in slamming him for saying, and you know what it was all about? Fine for him to have his faith, but don't say that's the only way. Who do you think you are? Who does Tim Tebow think he is, that there's only one way? Tim didn't make it up. We're not making it up. Abram didn't make this up. God says, there's only one way. And you know what? In a way, circumcision is pointing to the New Testament. And you stop and think about this. It's kind of a weird thought. But in a way, Jesus Christ was in a spiritual sense, God circumcised him. God cut him off and threw out the dirty part. Remember when Paul said he became sin for us. Remember Jesus on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on? God was in essence circumcising him because of the dirty sinfulness. You see, the physical part of circumcision was all about pointing to the matters of the heart. It was a physical symbol. Yes, it was an ethic identity. Yes, it had to do with humility. God is at work in our nation. And, and Abram only did it because God worked through him. Yes, it's a mark of loyalty. But it's all about the heart. And we'll get there in just a minute and finish that out. You see my text box on there? Will you take just a minute and focus on it? Let's just interrupt our sermon. And let me mention something that I thought was important because of what is couched in the ramifications of this passage. Now, some of you may have never heard this before, and others of you uh, may believe this, and others of you may just be interested in it. But I thought it was interesting because there are many faith groups and denominations, some who are very committed, Bible-believing Christians that we would have close fellowship with and love and walk in truth together, believe that there is, a, there is an act in the New Testament that is based in essence on the meaning of what circumcision was in the Old Testament. And do you know what that was? It's is, it's infant baptism. Infant baptism. Perhaps everyone here has heard of churches or groups that baptize or sprinkle, and it's almost always sprinkling. It's something about immersing, immersing an infant that doesn't go over well with people, but um, it, it, when you sprinkle an infant, where does that come from? What is that all about? It comes from Genesis 17 and the idea that the baby in this sprinkling is and it's symbolic of a grace of our Lord Jesus that is put on the child in the way that a circumcised baby at day 8 is recognized as a covenant child. He's different than the rest of the world. He's marked. He's a covenant child. And when you baptize a baby, in essence, you're saying he's not like the rest of the world. He's a a baptized baby. Now, I have many good friends. And I want to say this very carefully and in all kindness. I don't want to offend people who are good Bible students who hold to this view because I have great fellowship with them. And uh, I don't want to offend anybody like that. And we would agree together that... This is not a saving act of grace, this infant baptism. There are groups, large denominations and faith groups, that would say that when you baptize that infant by sprinkling them, that they have now come under the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and their soul is now saved from hell. That's not what I'm talking about here. We would all reject that. We would all stand together in rejection of that teaching. That is totally unbiblical. But what I'm saying is that there are a group of people in the conservative, evangelical, and, and fundamental Christian world that would teach differently than I would teach or that is not Fellowship Bible Church's position. And part of the reason I bring this up is that every once in a while I'll have a young parent come to me and say, Would you baptize my baby? And I always say, no, I won't do that. I try to say it graciously and kindly. And I talk about our baby dedication ceremony. And in a way, that's sort of what a lot of the um, folks believe when they baptize their baby. But there's more to it in their theology and doctrine than that. But I I just, if you look to the text box... I just wanted to ask the question, is infant baptism a replacement for circumcision as a covenantal sign? We would not argue, we would not fight over the fact that it's not the same as circumcision. No one would defend that. We know that circumcision was only for males and that you only did that to the male. We know that in the New Testament, when, when it is practiced in a church group for infant baptism, that they'll baptize baby boys and baby girls. And so in that sense, they know that it's different than circumcision, and they're not arguing that. It's the idea that through this act that there is a, a grace of God kind of covering that child that in essence, as I understand what they believe, to mean that they are more inclined than to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior when they get older. I would say this. This is why I don't teach this from our pulpit and why it's not in our doctrinal statement and why we don't practice infant baptism and why we would say there is nothing in Genesis 17 that anywhere else in the Bible is transferred over to infant baptism. Number one, there is no connection. There is no connection in the Bible anywhere that I can see between circumcision and infant baptism. Number two, the New Testament teaching or meaning of circumcision is completely now, once we get to the New Testament, it's all about matters of the heart. It has nothing to do with babies. It has nothing to do with an endowment of grace from God in any special ceremonial way that marks them as a covenant child. Number three, there is no New Testament teaching At all giving instruction concerning infant baptism. It seems to me if it was that important, and I know this is an argument from silence, but this infant baptism is a doctrine built upon silence, that in the pastoral epistles, the Apostle Paul would have instructed them about baby baptism. Somewhere in there, it seems like it would show up. Fourthly, there's not even, not only is there not New Testament teaching, but there's no New Testament examples. And some people say, but you remember the Philippian jailer, he and his whole household were baptized. That had to include infants. Well, that's an argument from silence, if I ever heard one. And in the New Testament, clearly, clearly in the New Testament, baptism, which is my next point, is always a believer's baptism. Well, we would build on the premise that, and you would say, that's an argument from silence that everybody in the household was old enough to believe. That's because there's no illustration or example of baptism in the New Testament whereby the participant wasn't a believer in Christ. I find that interesting. Ultimately then, I think this is a very important point and some of my friends who practice this would not agree with this. And in fact, they would put themselves up as protectors of the doctrines of justification but I I would maintain that the practice of infant baptism as a covenantal sign contributes to misunderstanding and confusion about the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone and that people just get confused about who's saved and who's not, and what does baptism mean, and what does baptism not mean. And when we sprinkle our babies, and there's no instruction of Scripture on that, that it, bring, that it actually brings a confusion to the church. So I thought it was important to maybe point that out, both to notate just a distinctive of Fellowship Bible Church, why we don't practice it. Some of you have never heard of it, and some of you checked out, and you wonder, what in the world is Pastor Van talking about here? And others of you... Um, You know a lot about that. And so that's why. And I thought here in Genesis 17, this idea of circumcision is the basis upon which many practice infant baptism. I just don't find it in the New Testament. All right, let's get back to circumcision. Let's finish it out and let's go home and watch football, right? Really important stuff. We see that circumcision is an ethnic marking of identity. We see that it's a mark of humility. We see that it's a mark of loyalty. I'm to be cut off, circumcised from my own people if I won't do it. I think number four, it is a mark of purity. Listen, now we're building towards the New Testament doctrine of circumcision. Purity in the sense that it is to symbolize the removal and the discarding of the impure thing. That which was a collector of impurity, that part or the fold of the skin that would only bring dirt, that was to be cut off. It was to be removed. It was to be discarded and thrown away, separated from. And it's a picture of purity. I am called to be walking in blamelessness. Remember verse 1 of chapter 17. Finally then, I I would suggest that number 5, that circumcision is a mark of fidelity. What do I mean by fidelity? If you're... Fidelity in a marriage means what? It means that I am totally committed, that I am maintaining faithfulness, that I don't wander away. Circumcision symbolizes spiritual commitment to God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament really. Only the circumcised heart really satisfies the conditions of the covenant. We have illustration after illustration in Scripture then of people who were physically circumcised that God condemned. The Pharisees would be a big group of them. They built their whole life upon the fact that they were circumcised and that they kept the law, and yet God condemned them. Jesus condemned them. Fidelity, what? the idea is that i have a physical mark that reminds me that my heart is supposed to be circumcised i wrote the old testament verses out cuz i knew we'd be pushed at this point to complete our thoughts look at deuteronomy 30 says moses said the lord your god will circumcise your hearts isn't that interesting and the hearts of your descendants so what so that you will love him with all your heart what's the point he is cutting away the impurity Spiritually speaking, cleansing your heart, removing the dross so that you will com- completely and in a committed way love the Lord. Look at Jeremiah four four, and the New King James uses the expression to take away the foreskins of your hearts. You didn't know your heart had a foreskin, did you? Spiritually speaking, it does. What is that? It is a part that gathers dirt. It is a part that is a collecting agent of the scum of the world in my heart. And God says, remove it. I want your fidelity. I want your love and your loyalty and your humility and your purity all to be directed at me. And I put this mark on you to remind you who you are. Same in Ezekiel, really. Will you turn to Galatians chapter 6 as we conclude? And let's just look up one verse now as we ask the question in conclusion, does God care about circumcision in the New Testament? Does God care about circumcision... Today, and you can look up the rest of these verses, but Galatians chapter 5, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is so clear. You'll recall the, the Apostle Paul's personal testimony in Philippians chapter 3, stay in Galatians 6, but in Philippians chapter 3, you remember that passage, don't you? Remember the Apostle Paul is saying, oh, you want, to have, you want somebody who's religious? Oh, you want somebody who's qualified, spiritually speaking, You by the standards of the world? You want somebody that's, that's very... Look at me. And what does he start with at the top of his list? Circumcised on the eighth day. I kept the law. I was above everybody in my class. And in that Philippians 3 passage, that's where you remember what he gets to. And take all of that. Take my circumcision. Take my keeping of the law. Take my memorization of the Old Testament. Take everything I was as a Pharisee. And it is, the King James says what? But dung. It is a manure pile. It is worthless. Why? Look at Galatians chapter 6. Again, the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 6, look at verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. See, in the Galatian church, they were torn. What, do I need to be circumcised anymore? And what, what's going on here? And Do I have to do that to get to heaven? The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Amen? By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the eyes of the Father was circumcised for me. Cut off the dirty part, the accumulation, The the filthy part was all accumulated on Jesus and the Father circumcised Him off. Why do you forsake me? Why? Because of His great love and His kindness, He pursued sinners like you and like me. And listen, a marking of the flesh amounts to nothing. If you're not circumcised today, men, don't really worry about it. The key here today, men and women, boys and girls, is is your heart circumcised? Or has your heart become some big foreskin of collecting dirt and filth of the world? God says, cut it off. Get rid of it. Yeah, it's a weird topic, but it's essential to knowing Christ, isn't it? That I may know him, Paul said, and the power of his resurrection. And all of my religious deeds are as nothing. They're as manure. Paul says, what counts is a new creation. Are you a new creation today? Are you a new creation in Christ? Do you know what it is to look to the cross and know that He was your sin bearer? And to know that your sin was placed upon Him and now by grace through faith you can admit your sinfulness and receive from Him that free gift of salvation so that by grace through faith you're saved and you're now a new creation in Christ. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? It's kind of gross to think about, but it's real, isn't it? Let's bow in prayer. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior before I pray today, I just want to ask you, put your faith and trust in Christ alone today. He was cut off from the Father, thrown away, that we could be pure and clean and marked by his grace not by any physical marking but by his grace so that our hearts can be circumcised pure and wholly dedicated unto God my friend today receive the free gift of God's salvation don't depend on any works counting beads saying prayers repetitious prayers putting money in the offering plate attendance at religious events being kind to people, these will not get you into heaven. Circumcision of the body will not get you into heaven. Baptizing a baby will not get you into heaven. It is only by putting your faith and trust in Christ alone, admitting your sinfulness, and knowing that the wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through one thing, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right now, in your seat, by faith, in your mind and heart, between you and God, you can become that new creation in Christ. And watch yourself begin to change. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to go paint your house. You don't have to put a flag on your car. Just spiritually let your heart be circumcised today and be made new in Christ. You might pray something like this, Father. Today, I recognize that my sin and my filth was put on Christ. And I confess my sinfulness. And I believe that Jesus died for my sin and paid that price to make me clean and pure in your eyes. Save me today, Father, in Jesus' name.